You can save 15% or more at Amazon when you pay with Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash. Just go to purse.bogosity.tv. You can set your own discount. 5% gets you fastest delivery, or you can set it to 30% or more if you're not in a hurry. Purse makes it so easy to save money at Amazon by buying with crypto. Just go to purse.bogosity.tv and start saving now. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of March 8th, 2020. The podcast that kissed the eaves and made the gables laugh. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's jubilate the news of the bogus. Last time I promised coverage of the Julian Assange extradition hearing, but there was just so much to cover, I made it a five-part series, which you can see on my channels at YouTube, BitTube, BitChute, or Library. The quick answer is that, as expected, it's a complete kangaroo court. The psychological torture of Assange continues to the point where he's not even allowed to shake hands with or even pass notes to his lawyer, and it's in recession until May 18th. But since I promised Assange coverage, I thought I'd go over Judge Andrew Napolitano's article on how this is a complete violation of Assange's First Amendment rights. As we've covered before, the similarities between this case and the Pentagon Papers are unmistakable and undeniable. In that case, which happened because the Nixon administration really didn't want people to know the truth about the Vietnam War, even the stuff that was actually done by Johnson, Justice Douglas asked a very important question to a government lawyer. What exactly does the term no law mean? The Pentagon Papers case ruled that all truthful matters material to the public interest can be published by journalists, regardless of how the journalists got them. It doesn't absolve the thief, but it absolutely insulates the publisher against civil and criminal penalties. The Trump administration is basically pretending that the Pentagon Papers case never existed, and as Napolitano writes, When lawyers blatantly reject well-accepted law for some political gain, they violate their oaths to uphold the law. When government lawyers do this, they also violate their oaths to uphold the Constitution. For them, there is no escaping the Pentagon Papers case. While the case turned on the concept of prior restraint of speech, it clearly reflects the views of the court that it matters not how the publisher obtained the secrets that he published. WikiLeaks revealed, in partnership with major international publications, including the two involved in the Pentagon Papers case, videos of American troops murdering civilians and celebrating the murders, a war crime, as well as documentary proof of American complicity in torture, also a war crime. And keep in mind, neither the Obama nor the Trump administration ever questioned the truthfulness of the content published by WikiLeaks. Judge Knapp writes, Assange fears that he cannot get a fair trial in the United States. The government says he can and will. When the government suddenly became interested in fair trials remains a mystery. Yet, arguments about fairness miss the point of this lawless prosecution. A journalist is a gatherer and disseminator of facts and opinions. The government's argument that because he communicated with Manning and helped Manning get the data into WikiLeaks' hands, Assange somehow crossed the line from protected behavior to criminal activity shows a pitiful antipathy to personal freedom. 
It is the height of naivete to think that Ellsberg just dropped off the Pentagon Papers at the Times and the Post without some coordination with those publications, coordination that the courts assume exist and implicitly protect. And keep in mind that this is the first time in U.S. history that a publisher has been charged under the Espionage Act. I'll let the judge wrap it up. The whole purpose of the First Amendment is to assure open, wide, robust debate about the government, free from government interference and threats. How can that debate take place in darkness and ignorance? If no law doesn't really mean no law, we are deluding ourselves, and freedom is not reality. It is merely a wished-for fantasy. If you're tired of these promos, regular supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv and sign up for Patreon or Subscribestar at any level. Ads are annoying, but ad blockers prevent publishers from making money. What if you could support your favorite websites, YouTube creators, Twitch streamers, social accounts, and many more ad-free and without paying anything, and even make some money yourself? It's not a pipe dream, it's airtime. Go to airtime.bogosity.tv and get the browser extension and you'll earn cryptocurrency for the sites you visit. And so will the publisher. This is not a crypto miner. You and the publisher will both get part of the reward from current miners of the BitTube cryptocurrency with no middleman taking a cut. Even if the publisher hasn't signed up yet, his tube will be put into a dedicated wallet that he can claim upon sign-up. You can also use your tube to tip publishers and even purchase products. Airtime monetizes users and publishers with no ads or crypto miners. Go to airtime.bogosity.tv and start making money now. So we've talked before about Oracle v. Google. This case involves the absolutely ridiculous and completely dangerous contention of Oracle that programming APIs are somehow protected by copyright and that Google is in violation of copyright for using the Java APIs to make its Android operating system. If you'd like a review of what I'm talking about with all the technical details, see the biggest Bogan emitter segment from 17 August 2015 and the opening segment from 30 May 2016. So now the Trump administration has gotten behind Oracle in yet another attack on the First Amendment and fair use. And it happened right when Oracle founder Larry Ellison hosted a $250,000 a plate fundraiser for the president. Gee. In the brief from the Solicitor General's office, the administration found Google's arguments unpersuasive and argued that software code is copyrightable, proving they're so ignorant they don't even know the difference between software and an API. They also reiterated the Obama administration's long-debunked claim that Google's arguments are invalid because they made Android incompatible with Oracle's Java framework. Also offering support of Oracle, unsurprisingly, were the News Media Alliance, the Motion Picture Association, and the Internet Accountability Project. They reiterated their complaints that Google uses copyrighted material without compensation, such as, and this is precisely their example, snippets of stories that show up in Google News results. Is there anyone out there who is still denying that they want to make that infringing use? How long am I going to continue to get comments from people saying, Oh, they never do that! It's just fake news and a conspiracy theory, blah blah blah! It's real, people! IAP Senior Advisor Rachel Bovard said, quote, 
If Google's allowed to get away with this, then anyone with the resources can get away with it. Get away with what? Exercising their First Amendment and fair use rights? The SAS Institute, and don't let the name fool you, they're a software company, a multinational making top-dollar analytic software, said in a brief that software makers depend on copyright protection to invest the vast sums they do in creating software. I'd love to see how they explain the enormous amount of development behind free and open-source software like Linux and Blender. Google, meanwhile, is getting support from IBM, Microsoft, smaller tech companies like Etsy and Reddit, and digital rights groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They also have the support of Sun Microsystems, the actual makers of the API Google is supposed to have ripped off, who has always said they're fine with it. It's hilarious, therefore, that in SAS's brief they keep saying things like, It took Sun years to create. The user-friendly, expressive choices Sun made became critical to Java's success. Google was no freer to copy that code than a novelist is free to copy prose from another book. Those interfaces are the product of Sun's creative choices. And they keep on like that, over and over and over again. Hey, Saz, how about letting Sun speak for themselves? If you've ever wondered about the importance of open software licenses, and especially if you're part of that sadly growing trend of conspiratard paranoiacs who insist that open source is really there to preserve copyrights, remember this. Sun created the Java APIs to be open and usable by everyone. Oracle is going back on that solely because they bought Java from Sun and because Sun didn't use an open source license on their APIs. Because no sane person should have to, because it's ridiculous to say that APIs are copyrightable. Open source and Creative Commons licenses are helping to stem the tide against those who would make every single utterance a copyright violation. They all deserve our support. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government sensors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. Long-time listeners will know my position on electronic voting. At a bare minimum, just to get us discussing the issue, you need three things. First, the software must be open source and the builds independently verifiable. Second, there must be a paper trail. Third, the voting machine needs to be completely isolated from any networking system while the voting is taking place. And as a bonus, it'd be really nice if voters had a system where they could verify their votes were recorded and counted correctly. The last one is tricky since how do you do that while maintaining privacy and anonymity of voters? 
Well, Microsoft has released the specifications for Election Guard, an open design with a reference implementation for electronic voting systems that would do all of those things, including allowing voters to securely verify their votes. And it's licensed under the MIT Open Source License and available on GitHub. Regular listeners know what a curmudgeon I am about electronic voting and Microsoft, so it should say something that I am impressed by this. Election Guard specifies a three-step process. First, a voter will select candidates on a touch screen and verify their choices. Second, the voter will print and review for accuracy a paper ballot and simultaneously receive a separate tracking code. Third, the voter will deposit their ballot into a ballot box for counting. Microsoft writes, Voters are able to verify the correct recording of their votes, and anyone, including voters themselves, can verify that all of the recorded votes are correctly counted. As with current election systems, voters will remain unable to disclose their recorded votes to protect their privacy. Election Guard provides each voter a tracker with a unique code that can be used to follow an encrypted version of the vote through the entire election process via a web portal provided by election authorities. After the election is complete, the tracker codes can be used by voters to confirm that their votes were not altered or tampered with and that they were properly counted. Not only that, but... Election Guard also includes an open specification, or roadmap, which allows anyone to write an election verifier. Voters, candidates, news media, and any observers can run verifiers of their own or download it from sources of their choosing to confirm tabulations are as reported. The combination of the tracker, which allows individual voters to verify that their votes have been accurately recorded, and the verifier, which allows anyone to verify that the recorded votes have been accurately counted, enables full end-to-end verification of the correctness of election results. It will not be possible to hack the vote without detection. It does this with something called homomorphic encryption. It allows for the secure and verifiable counting of individual votes while not revealing the details of the individual votes. This is possible because homomorphic encryption allows computations to be done on encrypted data without having to have the secret key need to decrypt it. It's also made to interoperate with accessibility devices to make voting easier for disabled people while not adding complexity for everyone else. In fact, this is arguably easier than any other voting system to date. Quote, One frustration is the difficulty of doing research on candidates and initiatives at the polling place. Our sample reference will showcase how people can make their selections at home, where they can easily research their choices, then bring a QR code to the polling place to scan and pre-populate their ballot. Of course, any systems that result from this will have to go through extensive testing, and I'm sure there will be plenty of hackers at DEF CON willing to do just that. But this at least demonstrates what's possible. Now it just remains to see how seriously politicians and election officials want to take it. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. 
LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now. And now it's time to rehumanize this week's biggest bogan emitter. And demonstrating that it's not only governments who don't want to take security seriously, we have the story of PayPal punishing cybersecurity researchers for finding and notifying them of six critical vulnerabilities. PayPal runs a bug bounty program through HackerOne, who should also get a dishonorable mention here. Their system for identifying and reporting bugs has become, as Bernard Meyer, senior researcher at Cyber News, says... More opaque, mired in illogical delays, vague responses, and suspicious behavior. He and his team found six vulns ranging from dangerous bypasses of two-factor authentication to sending out malicious code to users. Quote, We were met with non-stop delays, unresponsive staff, and lack of appreciation. When we pushed the HackerOne staff for clarification on these issues, they removed points from our reputation scores, relegating our profiles to a suspicious, spammy level. This happened even when the issue was eventually patched, although we received no bounty, credit, or even a thanks. Instead, we got our reputation scores, which started out at 100, negatively impacted, leaving us worse off than if we'd reported nothing at all. Now, before you go thinking the problem is just HackerOne, they tried to reach out directly to PayPal, only to receive boilerplate responses and a lack of any sort of action from human representatives. He goes over the vulns, but this is really about PayPal's responses to them. For example, for a vuln allowing an attacker to bypass 2FA, they said, If the attacker has the victim's password, the account is already compromised. As such, there does not appear to be any security implications as a direct result of this behavior. But the whole point of 2FA is to secure against a compromised password. I mean, this would be like a car company refusing to repair a faulty airbag because there would already have to be an accident for the airbag to go off. Ridiculous! In another case, quote, PayPal replied that since it isn't exploitable externally, it is a non-issue. However, while we plan to send them a full proof of concept, PayPal seems to have removed the file on which the exploit was based. This indicates that they were not honest with us and patched the problem quietly themselves, providing us with no credit, thanks, or bounty. Instead, they closed this as not applicable, costing us another five points in the process. PayPal also didn't seem to understand that vulns can be made worse in combination. For example, you can buy a compromised password on the dark web, use their first vuln to bypass 2FA, and then use their third to bypass the security around sending money. That is a pathway from someone with no access whatsoever to drain bank accounts linked to PayPal users. In the comments, Meyer posted, It is quite disappointing, since our main goal is not to get a bounty, but to get this issue patched. 
I can only imagine the amount of people already affected by this vulnerability. The reasoning behind PayPal's refusal to fix it isn't clear to me. So a lot of this is definitely PayPal, but Meyer also points out an incentive problem with HackerOne, which has done things in the past like banning a researcher who tried to report a zero day in Steam. Since HackerOne employs security researchers who are also active bug bounty hackers, they're basically given first dibs on vulns, and if they're unscrupulous, they can close the issue, report the vuln themselves, and claim the bounty. As Meyer points out in the comments, it's only a matter of time before hackers use these to commit large-scale fraud. And it seems to me there's a bigger issue here, too. The idea of a bug bounty is to get hackers to report vulns instead of selling them on the black market, which is good. Another effect they have is to get people who wouldn't ordinarily be looking for vulns at all to start looking for them, which is also good. But what does it achieve to cut them off like this? It means you have people who otherwise wouldn't have been looking for vulns at all, who, now that they've been spurned, are now incentivized to sell them on the black market. Treating bug hunters like this might actually create more exploitable vulns and more black hat hackers. So all of that makes PayPal this week's biggest bogan emitter. Do you have children? Or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling? Or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttletwins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now let's devitrify this week's Idiot Extraordinaire. And this week it goes to Tulsi Gabbard for another ridiculous lawsuit against Google. I don't know, it's just that kind of week. So Dennis Prager's lawsuit against Google for being anti-conservative was deservedly dismissed. But now Tulsi has a similar lawsuit for being, I don't know, anti-Tulsi? Anyway, Stephen Wilson apparently had to explain to her and her high-priced lawyers how the First Amendment actually works, actually citing the PragerU case. She's gotten her little panties in a wad because Google took down her advertisements for a few hours because of an automated fraud warning caused by unusual payment activity, and it had to be cleared up. According to her, that's exactly the same as the government censoring political speech. Now, you would think that these lawyers would have learned about the First Amendment in law school, if not high school, and one would hope that someone running for president might at least have heard of it. But Wilson had to give them an elementary lesson, quote, The First Amendment provides, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people peaceably to assemble. The First Amendment, applied to the states through the 14th Amendment, prohibits laws abridging the freedom of speech. In effect, 
The First Amendment means that government has no power to restrict expression because of its message, its ideas, its subject matter, or its content. And yes, he put the emphasis on the word government. Google is not now, nor to the court's knowledge has it ever been, an arm of the United States government. The Free Speech Clause prohibits only governmental abridgment of speech. The Free Speech Clause does not prohibit private abridgment of speech. Plaintiff alleges Google has become a state actor by virtue of providing advertising services surrounding the 2020 presidential election. Plaintiff's argument is that, by regulating political advertising on its own platform, Google exercised the traditional government function of regulating elections. Those of you who are either laughing your heads off or face-palming are way ahead of Tulsi and her law team. To draw the line between governmental and private, this court applies what is known as the State Action Doctrine. Under that doctrine, as relevant here, a private entity may be considered a state actor when it exercises a function traditionally exclusively reserved to the state. Traditional government functions are defined narrowly. It is not enough that the federal, state, or local government exercised the function in the past, or still does. And it is not enough that the function serves the public good or the public interest in some way. Rather, to qualify as a traditional, exclusive public function within the meaning of our state action precedents, the government must have traditionally and exclusively performed the function. Those functions include, for example, running elections and operating a company town. There is no argument that web services or online political advertising are traditionally exclusive government functions. Plaintiff argues that, by providing some restriction on political advertising on its platform, Google is, in effect, regulating elections. So, running political ads is not the same thing as regulating elections. I know, duh. What plaintiff fails to establish is how Google's regulation of its own platform is in any way equivalent to a governmental regulation of an election. Google does not hold primaries, it does not select candidates, and it does not prevent anyone from running for office or voting in elections. To the extent Google regulates anything, it regulates its own private speech and platform. Plaintiff's national security argument similarly fails. Google protects itself from foreign interference. It does not act as an agent of the United States. Nearly every media or technology company has some sort of cybersecurity procedure. Under plaintiff's theory, every media organization that took steps to prevent foreign cybercrimes could potentially implicate the First Amendment. Google's self-regulation, even of topics that may be of public concern, does not implicate the First Amendment. For the reasons provided above, defendant's motion to dismiss is granted because these facts could never give rise to a First Amendment claim. Plaintiff's complaint is dismissed with prejudice and without leave to amend. In other words, that's it. She cannot refile. She could theoretically get this ruling overturned on appeal, but that's unlikely given what an easy knockdown this was. Unlike what I usually do, I read out almost the entirety of the decision, minus the preliminaries and the references. This decision is only three pages long. So all of that makes Tulsi Gabbard this week's... Idiot Well, that 
wraps up this Your Father Always Wanted You to Be a Lawyer, He Sure Could Have Used One edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please keep this podcast going by hitting like and subscribe and supporting in one of several different ways you can find at donate.bogosity.tv, including PayPal, cryptocurrency, or subscribing at Patreon or Subscribestar to listen early and ad-free. Also, please come to discord.bogosity.tv where you can join the discussion and post a question, statement, news article, or rant. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Frederick Douglass. To suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the rights of the hearer as well as those of the speaker. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Ads are annoying, but ad blockers prevent publishers from making money. What if you could support your favorite websites, YouTube creators, Twitch streamers, social accounts, and many more ad-free and without paying anything, and even make some money yourself? It's not a pipe dream, it's airtime. Go to airtime.bogosity.tv and get the browser extension and you'll earn cryptocurrency for the sites you visit. And so will the publisher. This is not a crypto miner. You and the publisher will both get part of the reward from current miners of the BitTube cryptocurrency, with no middleman taking a cut. Even if the publisher hasn't signed up yet, his tube will be put into a dedicated wallet that he can claim upon sign-up. You can also use your tube to tip publishers and even purchase products. Airtime monetizes users and publishers with no ads or crypto miners. Go to airtime.bogosity.tv and start making money now.